Hey guys, it's Downtown Josh Brown. We are sort of live from the compound. Play our favorite game, What Are Your Thoughts? I'm here with Michael Batnick as always. Michael doesn't know what I'm going to ask him. I don't know what he's going to ask me. Let's see what's going on. Welcome to the Compound Show podcast. Each week, we let you in on some of the best conversations we're having about markets, investing, and life. Just a quick reminder, the hosts of the show are employees of Ritholtz Wealth Management, All opinions expressed are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Okay, here we go. All right, Mike, I'm going to go first. Um, Are there any crisis stars? Like, I mean... Well, besides you, I feel like every one of these crashes, we've gotten like these new celebrity people that called it in advance. But this one was so exogenous and so sudden that I feel like nobody really had time to position themselves as the the man or the woman who saw it coming. Um, I think the closest to that is maybe Muhammad Alarian, but only because he he said, don't buy the dip. He didn't he didn't predict the pandemic. Um, I don't I, know. What are your thoughts? I, I think Ben Hunt comes to mind. Okay. Because he was, he was so aggressively like, guys, pay attention, pay attention. And I was, I'll admit that I was laughing a little bit. Not like, I wasn't publicly shaming because that's not my style. But when I was reading, I was like, wow, this guy's really out there. And it turned out that he was 100% right. Okay. He, I, I remember like one tweet in particular, he was talking about uh, how the stadiums are going to be empty. And this was like, it feels like four years ago now. It's probably four weeks ago. I'm thinking like, this guy is warped. And so I think that he comes to mind as a voice that was that was right. He was so he was very aggressive, very early in yelling at investors to pay attention to the virus and our lack of response. Like he was like all over the political thing. Maybe he could correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like his focus was more on the reality side of things than on the investing specifically. Okay. Uh Bill Ackman kind of is trying to position himself as um, the man who sort of coming like he he did not he going that, so well. It's not going well. People aren't people aren't uh, falling into line. He's not going to be the new Rubini or the new well, John Paulson. Wh- was the day that he was on? Was that was he on March 23rd at the bottom? He was close to the low. There are people that are blaming him for causing the low, which I don't agree with. I, I, I don't agree with that either. But uh, but, but, but yeah, he, so, as far, so importantly. He was not in February screaming from the rooftops, this is about to hit the market. What he did instead was he came out after a 20% decline and talked about how many hedges he had put on after the fact, which I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just well, saying he I don't turned, think that- I think, I think it turned the $27 million hedge into like $2 billion. So, I mean, his investment results have been pretty phenomenal. So, uh, what about Dr. Dr. Fauci and some of the other medical people? Yeah, no, but forget that. Of course. Uh, I think, I mean, investing? Yeah, like the breakout stars of this are uh, Chris and Andrew Cuomo, Dr. Fauci, um, the woman with the scarves, maybe. I don't know her name, so probably not. But I'm saying like just on Wall Street, who – so there's gonna there are going to be crisis stars, people that saw it, quote, saw it coming or reacted fastest. And then there are going to be the stars who like – accurately tell you okay that the worst is now over 
get in. And I think there are a lot of people vying for that title right now. Yes. Yeah, so, of course. Okay. Okay. Uh, what do you got? Uh, so I just did a post this morning about why this is not going to be another Great Depression. Wanted to get your take on the takes. <laughs> okay. Well, I agree with you. Um, what What would you say is your main point? Uh, why you don't think it's it's uh, a depression? So so many points to make, but I think just structurally speaking, the federal government had absolutely no idea what they were doing at the onset of the depression, and even when we were clearly in one, Hoover. Refused to even acknowledge it. Correct. He spoke a lot. He he spoke a lot about self reliance and the community should lift people up and rich people should help the 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 needy. So there was no relief from the federal government. The Social Security Act, which uh, was the birth of unemployment, wasn't passed until 1935. So we were completely flying blind. And then in terms of the federal government, uh, Hoover was trying to balance a budget, which is like right now it's it's just you know incomprehensible. The federal government had no idea what they were doing. They were they were completely. Uh, just flying blind, totally clueless. So from that point of view alone, I think it's incredibly unlikely that we see something like that. And then just the structural forces with our within our economy, our economy is so much more dynamic than it was back then. Just for a million, million reasons, it's not going to happen now. I think things can get very, very bad. So I'm not trying to minimize what's happening. I just think that to throw out, oh, just to throw out casually the Great Depression is I don't, I think that there's three things. Either people are trying to scare people that don't know better, um, they really believe it, they don't know history, or they're just not being serious when they say it. They just say it offhand without realizing the, the ramifications of what the depression actually was. So I think those are all good points. I did a post uh, last week, three reasons it's not t- 1929, and I think like um, a lot of the things that you're thinking about, I'm thinking about. The first thing that I pointed out is that um, in 29, the Fed was nowhere near as powerful and as um, and, and as experienced as it is now almost 100 years later. Like people have to remember the Fed was a five or seven year old institution in 29 and just was not where it is today in terms of its influence and didn't even know what its power was really at that time. They reacted really, really quickly this time and they're using the words infinite and unlimited and that's exactly what they should be saying um, rather than putting dollar figures on these programs. They're basically saying, no, you don't understand. We're not going to let things go to zero. We are going to stand and buy what we have to buy. The second John Kenneth – hold on please. one second. Sorry to interrupt. John Kenneth Galbraith in his book The Great Crash 1929 wrote, the Federal Reserve Board in those times was a body of startling incompetence. And right. say what you will about the Fed. I know some people don't like them, whatever. Uh they're taking aggressive action. And think about how quickly the monetary response was where Congress previously like you can't get anything done. You have to credit where credit is due. They got things done. Yeah. Um, the second thing, the second thing is that we don't, we still to this day don't really know what was the spark that caused the crash of 1929. Like we we don't have an agreed upon answer. Um, and that's with 90 years of research. Looking into it, the foremost scholar on the Great Depression and the economic situation it caused is Ben Bernanke. And I think even he would say, like, we know there were overvalued stocks. We know that there was a bubble in terms of, like, the mentality of investors in the 20s. But we don't know what deliberately or what directly caused the crash that day. Um, whereas today, everyone, like my my 10-year-old could explain to you 
why the economy is shut down and, and why um, no one's making money in the stock market crash. Everyone agrees what the cause is of this so that when it abates, we'll all agree that it's getting better. So so that's two. And then the last one, um, I, I think the way we buy stocks these days. So people who get laid off are not going to keep contributing to a 401k. Fine. I'll stipulate that. But we still have 100 million participants in 401k plans. And the ones who are still working and earning a paycheck, every two weeks, they go and buy stocks. And that didn't exist during the Great Depression. There were no forced buyers with retirement accounts who literally had to put risk on. So, so I, let me I ask you a question. You. So, so what sort of floor does that put under the market? Because is that floor – like the difference between 60% and 90%. I forget what the numbers were. Ben and I were talking about this. To fall, to go from 60% to 90%, I think it's another 60% drop. So where, what floor does that put under the market? Because it's not 35% floor as we just saw. Is it a 60% floor? All right. That's a great question. I think if you look at the nature of the V-shaped recoveries we've been having for the last 10 years, that is directly attributable to corporate buybacks and to this 401k juggernaut between 401ks and IRAs. It's $5.7 trillion America had invested as of the start of this year. And you look at like what happened at the end of March, beginning of April, that seems to have put a floor into the market. It was a rebalance. It was America's pension plans, 401k accounts, uh, uh, managed accounts, uh, insurance company portfolios, trillions of dollars that found that wound up owning too much bonds, too little equity relative to their target weight. And this is one of the few cases where it was actively telegraphed in advance. Like every market commentator saw this coming at the end of March and it actually happened. Now you could say that that, um, that was actually just like um, what's self-fulfilling prophecy. All right, whatever, it still happened. So I don't know what kind of floor it ultimately puts. I'm not saying the market shouldn't go down 50% from its high. I'm just saying we have a forced buying mechanism now that did not exist in the early 1930s. Um, all right, let's move on. I want to ask you about this this new thing I'm hearing. Maybe this is somewhat related. People are being like, they're looking at the trading volume in SPY and they're saying, ha ha ha, so much for passive investors. Um, but they're, look, they're not looking at VOO, which is Vanguard's equivalent. So like SPY had 14 straight days of $50 billion worth of trading which is incredible. And I agree that people are being way more active than passive these days. But that's not a signal that passive investors all of a sudden fell apart. If you don't look at the Vanguard equivalent or even the iShares equivalent, um, you don't have the full picture. What do you think? So Eric Balchun has tweeted, we'll throw this up, tale of two worlds. Our allocators versus traders ETF low indices showed the biggest gap on record in Q1. The allocator side, which to your point, Josh, is Vanguard, Schwab, iShares core ETFs saw a net $41 billion. So it was the biggest gap, I believe. What's ever. the iShares? It's IVV. Right. So I guess I guess on the trader side would be SPY. I don't know what else they're measuring, but we'll throw this in the notes. Right. So when you see huge volatility and buying and selling in SPY, that's the funds. ETF that hedge funds use to get right. exposure or short the market because it has the most liquidity. That's not a signal of what most retail or individual investors or financial advisors are doing. Okay. So it looks like the S&P is now 
I don't know what it is today, about 20% off the bottom. Was that, was that the low? I feel like you ask me that every time. Um, I don't, I don't think so. So I, I think that the enormity of what's going on in the economy, um, keeps us suppressed. And I just wouldn't be surprised if we retest that low. I hope we don't not like, dude, I'm not rooting for it. I know. Um, but I just made contributions. Like I just made a 401k contribution this week. I made a contribution to my liftoff account, uh, this week. Like it's okay if my next one is at a lower price. Um, so I know that's a cop out. Uh, if, if you're looking for somebody who's going to tell you where the exact bottom is in advance, I would be like the worst person to tell you that because I feel like I get more pessimistic the lower the price goes. And me too. I usually feel better the higher it goes. So don't, don't rely on By me the way, that shit. Isn't it? Well, nobody is, I hope. Isn't it interesting that, uh, just the way that you adapt to this and how your mood is affected by the Dow and the S&P, even though it makes no sense, totally. the, makes no sense in the world. But yesterday, the, the market was up like 8%. It was the 32nd best day ever. And I didn't even blink. I was like, ah, oh, no big deal. Um, the down days, as we already know, the down days feel so much worse. Like, it's not even a- well, Can I- Wait, 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 wait. Can I say one thing, though? It actually-, actually <laughs> I think it does make sense for you to feel better on a day like yesterday- because not only was the S&P up 7%, more important than that, the reason, the reason is that um, Governor Cuomo actually had some like signs of hope yes. in his press conference. So it's like, it does make sense. You should feel better. So I just want to, re- I just want to read you fi- just five quick things from this book, The Great Depression, A Diary, because people tend to want to ascribe a reason every single day why the market is doing what it's doing. Why is it going up? Why is it going down? Nobody knows. I think that this is such a good reminder of just stop trying to figure out what's going on every day. Now, is the bottom in? Again, who knows? My my personal inclination is, and I don't think I'm smarter than the market, but I do seem to think that the market is, I mean, the economy is going to continue to get much worse. So I guess the million dollar question is, is a 35% decline enough? Did we already front run the bad news that's going to keep coming? We don't know. Uh, but I just want to read these quick things. So this is from August 1932. This was the bottom, August 1932. The stock market continues upward for two weeks now in the face of unfavorable semi-annual reports and predictions are again made freely that we have turned the corner. Second, this is from a few days later. In the last 30 days, the stock market has given one of the most strenuous rallies in its history. Even the New York Times yesterday devoted considerable front space, front page space to it. There is no tangible explanation for this by way of industrial revival. And yet there's plenty of optimism and feeling that this fall will see a turn period. Number three, uh, again, August. So just two weeks later. The speculative interest of the public seems as strong as, as ever in spite of their experience of 1929. Most of them seem determined to recover part of their losses. Both commodity prices and the bond market are also moving up. In the meanwhile, there is no visible sign of improvement in business or industry. And on the contrary, it seems to be getting worse. Uh, September 1st, so just a month after the bottom. Nobody seems to know even why the stock market went up because business has gotten worse instead of better. And lastly, this was in September so far in the last two years, the stock market has made eight fake starts upwards and then eventually come back to record lows. So, right. so much richness in there. And I think one thing that we can compare this to 1929 or any other period is that the behavior of people is a constant, 
even though everything, right. the stories, the characters, the companies, the conditions, everything changes, but the people stay the same. Yeah. So I think it's widely accepted that stocks bottom in advance of the economy. I think everyone agrees with that. Um, but they false bottom several times also, and you don't know which one is the real one. Um, I actually posted something from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch today, um, and they they went back and looked at every recession back to like the 1860s and whatever would represent the stock market at that time. And it's pretty consistent that the stock market bottoms an average of five or six months before the economic data does. Um, granted, like economic data in the 1800s is not what it is now, but still- um, you're right. The constant is human behavior. We keep seeking out a bottom and then one day it actually is. Um, but it's pretty reliable. The other thing that I thought was noteworthy is that. So you ask, is 35 percent enough in the S&P? Um, there is a very high correlation between not the depth of how bad the economy gets, but the duration in months that the recession runs on for, which makes perfect sense. And that's the chart that I posted today at uh, the Reform Broker blog. So if you think about it that way, um, the, the the longer that this period of time of contraction goes on for, that will dictate how bad the market has to get in terms of like how low it has to go. So assuming that history holds constant, you're right. Like that's the way to think about it. Um, hold, hold on. One last thing before we move on, move on yeah. from this. It is interesting that the cognitive dissonance that goes on, and I do this all the time, where on the one hand, you'll say, we know the market is forward looking, but when the market goes up on bad news, even though we know that happens, it still puts my brain into a pretzel. Well, I, I, I think take your own advice. Don't try to understand it day to day because but that's what, but that's but usually that's, inexplicable. But that's what biases are. You can't avoid them. True. All right. Let's pivot. Did you... Whoa, <laughs> I'm 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 sorry. I have to go now. Here. Now you have my attention. <laughs> Did you fucking call me from a Peloton the other day? Did you do that? Did I? I think you did. Probably. Yeah. It's part okay. of my routine. It's part of my routine now. Okay. So this is an intervention. You are not in shape enough to the <laughs> point where you're one of those people that can do a Peloton business call and pull it off. You were like, <laughs> Josh. <laughs> Did you, did you did you read the, the whatever you were talking about? And it didn't occur. I figured maybe he's walking his dog, and the wind is blowing. No, you tried to pull off a Peloton call. I did, and I know that because Chris said the same thing. Chris is like, "Yo, Mike's calling me from his Peloton." <laughs> is he kidding? It's a great time so, to make right, phone calls. Let me help you. You're not one of those guys. All right, fine. You're not Justin Costelli. Don't fucking call me from a Peloton ever. Okay. You could take like a five minute break to call me. I and I won't do. I won't do the same back. I know you uh, never ride right. a Peloton. No, you know that for sure. I ride a real bike because sure. I'm a gr- I'm a grown up. Okay, so I leave my toys in the yard. All right, and I, and it's I enough. Ride. All right, all right, go ahead. Aside from me calling you on the Peloton, what is <laughs> the best part about working from home? Uh, all right, so. I want to give the the right ant like the the correct answer, which is being around the kids and my wife and spending time at home. And I think that is kind of a silver lining. Is like we really have gotten close. Um, but I honestly would have to say the ability to just at one o'clock be like, I have nothing scheduled till three. I'm going out on my bike. I'm gonna go ride ten miles. Um, or I'm gonna ca- I'm gonna watch uh, an episode of Tiger King. Like just in the middle of the day, being able to take a, a real break from work, um, I think is pretty cool in a way that we can't do in the city. Uh, like obviously, 
So that that for me. Uh, what's what about you? Agreed. I mean, you have babies at home. It's got to be extra special for you. It is. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking like, man, this it goes so fast. So I definitely feel lucky to be able to work from home to be able to spend time with them when I have a break. And it's yeah, it's. I don't want to say it's great because I I know. You know, people not, have a t- it is what it is. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I was thinking about is like, it is what it is. Like the, you have to find silver lining no matter what and just recognize how lucky we are versus there are people who have the same experience we do right now staying at home. But then one of their family members wakes up at 5 a.m. to go to a hospital. Yeah. And, and work there all day. So I, I, I think, I think I'm good. Like if, if this continued for another six months, like, I don't think I'm the type of person where I would go absolutely insane because people adapt so quickly. And I know this is such a ridiculous comparison, but the book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, like those people adapted to being in concentration camps. This is, you know, like it's just in the human spirit to adapt to things. So this is obviously not even close to that bad, but I'm, I'm already good. Well, to your point though, in that book, like Frankl's message is that you find your reason for staying alive. And it turns out your reason is that you worry about what's going to happen to other people if if you go. And I think a lot of people are finding that reason in their lives right now. Sometimes, so, sometimes just giving money to a food bank. Sometimes it's like calling relatives they never speak to. But like people are finding a selfless purpose every day. So for us, uh, obviously, it's keeping the firm going and being in touch with clients and um, making sure our employees have what they need. But like, I feel like people do find their, their purpose in these moments. Obviously, this is nowhere near the extent of what is described in that book. But I, I think, I think the threat is, uh, kind of carries through. Um, all right. This is my last one. Um, I was saying the other day that what America needs right now is for baseball to return. I know you're NFL, NBA guy, and so am I. Um, that, 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 but- ha- that hat, by the way. What? I mean, represent, do I need to say the, it? No, it's not. Representing it's, the fam. It's not, I didn't want to do my hair today. It's not the team. It's the hat. The oh, flatness. Right. I mean, come on. <laughs> You're just not down with, with, with the culture. Um, what do you think about baseball coming back? Do you agree with me that if we had something to watch on TV every night, besides the, the death rate, it would be a really great morale booster? Like, that's my, that's my whole concept. And it looks like they're going to try it. What do you think? I don't know. I'm so out of touch with baseball. I'm, I'm, I don't. Yeah, but wouldn't you watch? All right, that's the question. No, I don't think Let's I would. Let's say there was a game on every night. You wouldn't care. Baseball? I don't think so. Can I tell you something though? I think you'll 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 have a, a take on this. So believe it or not, I I don't know how this happened. I've never seen Seinfeld. Like I've seen an episode. I know what the show is, but Wait, I never. What's going on now? <laughs> You've never seen Seinfeld. I've never seen a full season. I've never. I like. I've probably seen. I don't know a dozen episodes randomly. Maybe. Okay. All right. So I'm watching. I'm trying to catch up on like culture okay. references from the last 30 years. Can I is tell you something? As, is it as good as you thought? The show is very good. I mean, I'm not breaking any ground here. It's a tough binge though. Like, cause it's this, it's, it's the same thing over and over. It's not like binge watching Breaking Bad, for instance, where there's like a story and like it's, it's, it's a hard binge. So the show is obviously very good, but. I don't know. All right. I'm not, I'm not going to reply. I'm going to let the comments, uh, I'm going to let the comments take care of that. Let us know what you think about Michael Seinfeld take, I'm which on, is one of the worst things I've ever heard. I'm on a lot of people's uh, lawns right now. I know. Wait, yeah. what do you mean the worst take? What's a bit? What, what was, that's a pretty bad take, dude. Which part? 
I guess, you know what, actually, what you don't realize is how foundational Seinfeld is to all the things that you actually love. That's right. I'm and trying, none I'm trying them, to catch up. None, like, none of the things that you think are great uh, in terms of comedy, movies, TV, like, almost none of that would exist if it weren't for Seinfeld. And I, and I think maybe that's hard for you to wrap your head around because you weren't watching as they aired mm-hmm. and you don't know what the world was like prior. Right. So I, I understand. You're a little bit younger. I understand that. All right. Still horrible. Uh, let us know what your thoughts are on any of these topics. We love your feedback. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel. I know we went a little long today, but there's so much going on. We really appreciate you guys taking us through 30,000 subscribers already. Um, it's only going to grow. Thank you for being a part of that. We will be back. I promise. Thanks for listening. Check us out at thecompoundnews.com for daily investing and market insights. You can watch all of our videos at youtube.com slash thecompoundrwm. Talk to you next week.